welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. It's really hard deciding what to do on this show every day right now. It's really hard putting the shows together in a way that I think will help people think through the things that we're seeing and feel their way through the things that we are seeing. This week has been especially hard in that regard because of what has happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. A black man, Jacob Blake, was chased down by white police officers and shot seven times in the back as he tried to get into his car to leave the scene of a domestic dispute that he wasn't even really involved in. That inspired an incredible amount of protest in that Wisconsin town, several nights. And then a few days later, a 17-year-old white kid from Illinois goes to Kenosha with an AR-15 rifle. And under the guise of, quote-unquote, helping the police, he shoots two people dead. And then there's video of this 17-year-old who's broken many laws at this point, wandering around among police, not even being detained. Even worse, conservative celebrities and politicians and commentators looking at these events have called this 17-year-old named Kyle Rittenhouse a hero of the Second Amendment. So now Kenosha is the center of our attention in this bizarre year of 2020, after Minneapolis, after the pandemic. Now it's Kenosha, which is calling all of us to try to make sense of systemic racism and its effects, to make sense of the inequalities that we live with all the time in this country. And I have to admit, it's as difficult for me to sort through how to think about this stuff and how to feel about this stuff as it is for anyone else. Of course, I'm angry about what's happening. Of course, I have real complex misgivings about the idea of policing in our country right now. But I also now find myself verging into the space of vengeful thinking. I find myself wondering what we have to do as black Americans to make the point that this is not acceptable. What are we going to have to do to stop this from happening? And there's some really dark thoughts down that road. We want to spend the day today trying to make sense of all this in a brighter context. Let's not go down the dark road that I and I think a lot of Americans have traveled this week. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about the opportunity for change. Let's talk about what we have to do together 
to get to a different point. A little later in the show, we are going to talk with Kevin Blackestone, who is an ESPN commentator and a Washington Post columnist, about the reaction of the sports world to what's happened. But first, I want to talk with two people locally who spend a lot of their time thinking about these issues. Peter Blackmer is an assistant professor of Africology and African American Studies at Eastern Michigan University, and he joins us for this conversation. Peter Blackmer, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be here with you. And also with us is Carl Taylor, who is a professor of sociology at Michigan State University. Carl, it is always great to have you here with us. Always great to be with you. So I want to start, of course, with the shooting of Jacob Blake, or Peter, as you call it, the attempted murder of Jacob Blake. One of the things that really strikes me about this and when it happened, which is this week, is the fact that every officer in America at this point must know that they are being paid more attention to than ever before and that the things that they're doing are more likely to end up on video than ever before. And still, this officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, felt okay to chase Jacob Blake down and shoot him seven times in the back. Peter, I, I, I want you to help me understand how difficult it is to reform this kind of behavior. Yeah. Well, Stephen, I want to start by acknowledging uh, just how important it is that you were so open and honest in the way that you opened this show, because the times that we're living in call for that kind of honesty and that kind of clarity and intentionality in the way that we use our language and express ourselves, which is why um, I describe what happened to Jacob Blake as an attempted murder, because how else can you shoot someone in the back seven times and have any other intention other than ending that person's life? Hmm. Um, so for me, th this moment calls for that kind of honesty and calling things what they are. Um, and, you know, I'm, I want to paraphrase the words of James Baldwin, who, um, you know, talks about in the late 1950s, early 1960s, he says that the only way to police a ghetto is oppressively. Hmm. Um, and the only way to reform a ghetto is out of existence. And I think we need to apply that same framework to thinking about police. Uh, when we think about the history of policing in this society, it is one uh, that is inherently oppressive. Uh, it is inherently oppressive of the lives of black people. Um, and what we saw with the shooting of Jacob Blake uh, by police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is a blatant disregard uh, for his life. And we're seeing this, the, the symptoms of a system that devalue black lives and see black lives as inherently criminal. Um, so if, if I'm learning anything from Baldwin, and I'm going to be drawing inspiration from Baldwin, it's the only way to reform police is out of existence. Mm. And when you say out of existence, I, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, that's a scary thought because the belief in American society is that we need the police to protect us. We need the police to protect us from people who would do us harm. If they aren't there, and I think in a lot of people's minds, then we would all be vulnerable. And there's certainly 
uh, on the far right, this this narrative emerging that says get rid of the police and there'll be chaos in urban communities. There will be looting and rioting all the time. And of course, getting rid of the police doesn't mean getting rid of public safety. Uh, but but Peter, talk a little about what you mean when you say reforming them out of existence. Sure. Well, I think that first it's important to clarify that we as a society uh, tend to view policing as being synonymous with public safety. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a critical fallacy. Um, and, it, and also, I want to acknowledge that, you know, while there are plenty of people that feel that a society without police is a scary place to live in, a society with police is a terrifying place to live in for large portions of our population. Um, and I think we have to be honest about that and acknowledge that the police are a serious source of violence in black communities. Um, and right. so that, I, mean, that, I think that's a critical point. I want to kind of just pause there. The police are a cause of violence in black communities. I, I, you know, just saying that and saying it more than once, I think, is a really critical uh, a dynamic to introduce to this conversation. Absolutely. And I think we need to look critically at the roles that police play in our communities, particularly in black communities. Um, Detroit being a majority black city, when water is being shut off to, uh, to black communities, black individuals in the city of Detroit, and people resist that water shut off, who's called to enforce that shut off? It's the police. Mm -hmm. We have video footage of that. Uh, when people historically, when people are being put out of their homes uh, for evictions, who is called to enforce that eviction when people uh, resist? It's the police. Um, when, uh, it, as we saw over the past weekends, um, when nonviolent protesters gather in a place that is the pinnacle of gentrification and white settler colonialism in the city of Detroit, who's called to kick those nonviolent protesters out of that part of the city? It's the police, and it's done incredibly violently. Uh, and I think we need to name that. We need to name that police serve as the enforcement arm of white supremacy in our nation. Mm -hmm. And we are very fortunate to have uh, so many thinkers who have been over the years, particularly black women thinkers and activists, who have been doing critical work of envisioning a society without police. Um, abolitionists like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, like Derricka Purnell, Angela Davis, um, and Amanda Alexander here in Detroit that are doing uh, incredible work in exercising the kind of radical imagination that it takes to not just envision a society that's more just and more humane, it's free of the violence that police inflict upon black and brown communities, uh, but actually putting that into action. Mm. Uh, Carl Taylor, you and I have had conversations many times over the years about uh, black communities and the ways in which we interact with police. Uh, you're someone who's done a lot of work trying to repair the relationships between those who police our communities and those of us who live in these communities. I, I really am curious to hear your reaction to what we have seen not just uh, over the last week or over the past summer, but this trend over many years, of course, of us seeing more of those interactions go badly uh, and badly for people of, of color. 
Well, uh, I certainly thank you for the opportunity. I think uh, it's a very complex uh, problem in some ways, and then in other ways it seems quite simple uh, to treat people as human beings opposed to uh, racial preference and, or uh, social status. Those are the likes. I think that you have to have policing. Perhaps we have to redefine the word or the act itself. I am a native of Detroit, as you know, mm -hmm. and grew up in a, <clears throat> a community on the west side where it began in my family that uh, we had to. We were taught as children, and was reinforced by the schools and by the religious institutions that we had to police ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, when we went to school, we policed ourselves, and the teachers would reaffirm those things. I also understand that our community, the black community, has had uh, an unbelievable, unimaginable task before it because it goes all the way back to since we hit these shores as slaves that we have been oppressed and treated very brutal mm -hmm. and uncivilized by those who are policing or controlling us. And so that is in, I think, is ingrained into the culture. And so it's very difficult for some to imagine anything else, that they feel that it is their right to control us. And it seems to me it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that people are uh, pushing back or fighting back, and rightfully so. I think the example of this shooting of the police, uh, of this young man who's paralyzed, is whether people like it or not, is despicable. I mean, it's simply unprofessional what happened. They're supposed to be trained. Mm -hmm. And it also shows that, I believe, for what it's worth, that it became simply emotional. It was not training. It was not discipline. And unfortunately, it comes across very cowardly to shoot, whether you're a policeman or not. We know since the days of the Cowboys, anybody shooting somebody, attacking someone from the back is considered cowardly. Right. So in this case, the other day, we see again that folks are not controlling their uh, tempers and their emotions. We see that from those who feel that the police are right that he should have stood still. But shooting in the back should bring about a rebuke from the police community, which it just doesn't happen. You have a lot of cops, uh, good cops, bad cops. I have very close relatives that are not only police officers, but also uh, police managers, you know, sergeants, uh, chiefs, and so forth in my family, and certainly in my circle of friends in Detroit. However, I don't hear the voice that challenges this behavior. Hmm. This is wrong behavior, unprofessional, and it should be dealt with. We don't need to hear excuses. People are tired of that, very tired. So that's why we're having this problem. Um, we used to police ourselves, uh, and the speaking of not having any policing, as I said, that's a delicate conversation to me. Yeah. I think you have to be able to have a sense of order in your home, in your community, in your schools, in all walks of life. We can't just have a free fall. But when I say that, there'll be people cringing. I'm not suggesting, not for one moment, this very uh, outlandish, uh, outrageous thinking that stay in your place. That's not what I'm speaking of. I'm just saying please yourself and do the right thing. And that sounds like a cliche, but it is. So we don't do that. It doesn't pay off, and you see what it gets us. That's why we have landed where we have now. Mm. That's why people hate the police, don't want police, because the police have not been applied to our community in any positive way. Mm.
Uh, I'm talking about the events that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin this week and the reaction, the reverberation, really, of those events across the nation. Uh, my guests are Peter Blackmer, an assistant professor of Africology and African-American studies at Eastern Michigan University, and Carl Taylor, a professor of sociology at Michigan State University. Uh, we would love to hear from you as well uh, this hour. What feelings and emotions are you having as you watch events unfold in Kenosha, Wisconsin? What does all of this tell you about where we are as a country in terms of race, in terms of violence, in terms of policing? And what kinds of conversations are you having about what's going on with these police shootings of unarmed black men and women? What do you think we ought to be doing differently? These shootings don't seem to be uh, on the decline, despite all of the attention that they are getting, despite all of the social activism that has sprung up this summer uh, in response to those shootings and the persistence of systemic racism in our society. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation Let's go to Tim in Bagley. Tim, welcome good to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? All right. Uh, your opening monologue really addressed the entire problem years, centuries long. We have a young boy who has unfortunately thrown his life away because his feeling of supremacy and his white skin with his finger on his illegal uh, assault weapon knows that he can go to the hot spot because that will all be forgiven because I'm a young white man and I'm going to do the thing that he and most of these rogue cops feel they're going to do. Mm. Hunt black Americans. And that's essentially what it is. And I think I said this a little while ago on another show. Police officers and military do one thing extremely well, and that is follow directions. We need to peel back those layers of bureaucratic hidden corruption. Who is behind these police departments issuing mm. these subversive rules and laws to go out and to hunt, to shoot, to put your knee in the neck of, to grab a young man by the back of his shirt, shoot him seven times, and all he's doing is being an outstanding citizen, breaking up a fight between two other citizens on the road. Now, these are just two very, very dramatic examples hmm. of what is going on in this country. Yeah. We aren't being protected. We aren't being controlled. We are being hunted. Yeah. It's like they are hit men. And let me be very clear when I say they. For those listeners who are hearing this, I am not condemning all police. I'm talking about the rogues, the racists who are and supremacists who are hiding behind a shield and the authority that it and that gun in the police department offers them to go out and I guess do crowd control and call from our cities uh, a substantial amount of African-Americans who they deem as enemies, combatants, yeah. or just those people. Yeah. It's a disgrace, because if you listen to what uh, Anderson Cooper and his group said last night, uh, Van William, Van Jones offered the concept of which we have to be very careful to understand, the coded language. Yeah. What does all this mean when you're going into these cities? White right. folks live out in Owasso and Okemos. Cities means we're going to go attack and hunt African-Americans. African-Americans. Tim, I, I really appreciate the call. 
um, and the thoughts. Uh, uh, Peter, uh, you say that the the example of Kyle Rittenhouse, this 17-year-old white vigilante who kills two protesters in Kenosha this week, uh, is just the latest in the nation's really long history of violent white backlash against black demands for human rights and for self-determination. And you also say that it's emboldened by government officials and mainstream media. We saw all of that unfold this week in the wake of what Kyle Rittenhouse did. The response to what he did strikes me as at least as much of the problem as what he did itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I want to point to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's book, um, Stand from the Beginning, because what he does there is lays out this um, long history of the dual tracks of uh, prog- racial progress backlash in this country. Um, and the example I want to give is immediately following the Civil War during Reconstruction, um, there was a concentrated effort to drive black people back into a state of slavery as close as possible that was led by law enforcement by white vigilantes, many of them former Confederates. Um, and that, that, uh, that pattern continues throughout the ages. Um, and a lot of times what we're seeing, particularly right now, as you identified, Stephen, um, local, state, federal officials and uh, media outlets are emboldening people uh, to take the kind of actions that Kyle Rittenhouse took. Um, when we look at uh, from uh, the federal government level, when we all this talk about law and order is that perfect example of the coded language that means to snuff out protest uh, that's being levied by black communities. Hmm. Uh, and I want to also be very clear that Detroit is directly complicit in this as well. Um, when we heard Chief Craig over the weekend um, say that and Deputy Chief Bettison as well. Um, say that uh, it's just not working with Detroit will breed protesters and that they have to go. And the constant line that um, Detroit will breed protesters uh, are not Detroiters. Um, this is a continued attempt to uh, other ostracize and vilify protesters, uh, particularly black protesters, that results and gives sanction to the kind of vigilante violence that we're seeing taking place in Kenosha, Wisconsin right mm. now. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about what's happening in Kenosha and what it means to the rest of us here in America. We're going to keep Carl Taylor and Peter Blackmer with us, and we want to continue to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. Sean in Windsor, Gene in Detroit. We'll get to you next. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there and join the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guests are Carl Taylor, professor of sociology 
at Michigan State University, and Peter Blackmer, who is a professor of Africology and African-American studies at Eastern Michigan University. We're talking about what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin this week, earlier this week, and the reaction to it, the reaction in Kenosha, and the reaction around the country. And we're talking about the summer and this year and this incredible movement that has come together to protest police brutality against African-Americans, as well as the history and continuing impact of systemic racism on black people in this country. We want to hear from you as well this hour. Call and tell us what you're feeling about what you're seeing in places like Kenosha. What does this all tell you about where we are as a country? And what does it tell you about what we ought to be doing, how we ought to be responding to this. I opened the show today talking about my own really complex emotions about this and the confusion, really, uh, that is starting to settle in about how we fix this and whether it can be fixed without uh, a much different approach, especially from African-Americans ourselves, uh, to the things that are happening to us. Uh, But call and tell us what you're thinking and how you're reacting to all of this. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to get you into the program that way. Let's go to Jordan in Detroit. Jordan, welcome to the show. Um, hi. Hi. Um, as a 60-year-old black man and living in the city of Detroit, I'm bitter of what's going on in the world today because, like I spoke to your screener, the battlefield is not equal. If you had 60 black militia standing out there or 30 black militia men with heavily armed guns, will we be treated the same as 30 white militia guys standing out there with guns? (laughs) Yeah. Of of course not, Jordan. I mean, uh, (laughs) that, that, that double standard is one of the things that, that, again, was on display in Technicolor, I feel like, uh, this week in, in Kenosha, as you saw the police respond to Jacob Blake the way they did, and then you saw them respond to Kyle Rittenhouse the way they did. Uh, one person was unarmed and not a suspect and not involved in any sort of criminal activity. The other Uh, was walking around with uh, an automatic weapon, uh, having already killed two people. Um, Carl Taylor, I'd love to have you uh, react to this, this continuing of that double standard and how we, how we push back against that. What is it going to take for us to get white America to stop responding to black people as though we're all criminals and start responding equally to people of, of all races? I think that's a, a, a very difficult question. I agree with you. I find that uh, I'm a large uh, black man and uh, hairy, and I've been told all my life I'm scary. Uh, I think the demonization of this the of black community is shameful. It's the question, can we get past it? Uh, the young man that was shot in the back was not that big. He didn't look like it to me from, from a distance. So there's this fear of the boogeyman or that we're like planet of the apes or something. That is the coded language. And I think many Americans who are white don't believe that or don't want to admit to this. 
I think that um, I'm disturbed deeply by the fact that uh, the young man, uh, not the team, we keep calling him a team, we don't apply that to a young African-Americans or Latinos or young men of color. Mm-hmm. When they do these acts, they're never continuously in the media talking about, he's a kid, mm. he's a kid. He killed two people, he had an AK-47, and your previous question is right on target. If it was 60, 30, or 15 uh, men of color, black men with AK-47, they'd get shot first, and questions would be asked later. The leadership of this nation would be saying, we had to stop that. They were terrorists or whatever. This is not a kid, and you should stop referring to him as a kid. Mm. And also that mental health certainly comes into play all the time. And the fact that you criminalize the black kid if he has AK-47, uh, it doesn't matter. He's dead meat. He should have known better. And we ourselves inside, internally in the black community, are teaching our kids or chastising our kids to the point that it's just become ridiculous. They can't do anything. You blink your eye, but I have news for anyone. I feel the same way. And as I said, I have police officers in my family, in my circle of friends, and I'm still, at 70 years old, scared to death mm. of the police. I don't see it's correcting us until we have leadership at the top. I'm speaking of religious leaders, politicians. You know who they are. And also you yourself, as individual citizens, stop saying the black man is dangerous. And don't give me this rhetoric and these statistics because, you know, that's a game that we play. Mm. Yes, yeah, certainly. I'm frightened to death. I'm frightened. I saw he was shot in the back as uh, George Floyd was with the knee. The guy knew he was killing him. You could see the demon in him. That's what I saw. So I'm just tired, and I don't have answers anymore. It needs to change immediately. And it seems to me that some are saying they're not willing to change. Mm-hmm. They're going to make it even worse. They've already called this young man a hero in many sure. circles, yeah. a hero. But you don't call her Pookie or any of the young black guys a hero. You demonize him, and you want to kill him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter Blackmer, we are, at the same time, we're watching what's happening in Kenosha. We were watching the Republicans make their case to the American people for another four years for Donald Trump. Uh, And this issue came up a couple times in a couple of speeches, but of course the approach is really different. And the the phrase or the the statement that, that stood out to me over and over is this assertion that America is not a racist country. Nikki Haley said that uh, in her her speech on Monday night. Uh, Vice President Pence uh, reflected very much the same sentiment um, when when he spoke. Uh, it, it it strikes me that more than anything else, those statements suggest we really live in very different countries from a lot of the folks who also call themselves. Americans, and it, it, I guess the fear for me is that that's a bridge too far to, 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 to fill the gap. In other words, there, there isn't a conversation to be had with somebody who, who says or believes that the things that we're seeing aren't racist. And, and I think that's one of the things that's got me really frustrated uh, this week is I don't know what the solution is because I don't even think we can talk in common terms about the problems. 
Right. I mean, first, it's an outright lie. This nation is founded upon white settler colonialism, genocide of indigenous peoples on this land, and chattel slavery of the descendants of Africans of Africa. So it's it's an outright lie to claim that this country is not racist. Um, And it's um, obviously it's a diversion tactic to try to cover up material interests. Um, So the way that I usually see this is that um, there's only so much you can do through conversation um, with people that have no interest in actually finding truth, but have more interest in just maintaining uh, their personal material position. Um, And what we need to be doing is mitigating the damage that those people can uh, do in this society Mm -hmm. and mitigating the damage that they can inflict upon black lives. Um, and if, if I might just uh, touch upon the, the, the issue of uneven playing fields and double standards, mm-hmm. um, I think it's critical to point out that so many of the narratives right now, they're being uh, they're coming from police officers and media is very uh, willing and eager to only run stories that are told from the perspective of police officers and police departments. Um, we are being told that uh, unarmed, nonviolent protesters represent some sort of existential threat to both officers and to our societies, which is just patently false. Um, we're being told that unarmed protesters have um, green laser lights. Meanwhile, they're facing off with hyper-militarized police departments that are being supplemented by federal agents. I mean, when we look at the kind of weaponry, the like Bearcats, the body armor, um, all of the military weapons that local police departments now have, it's critical that we understand that the reason why those munitions exist in our cities is in direct response to decades of nonviolent struggle against police repression, against structural racism in our society. And that is the system responding the only way that it knows how, which is through violent oppression. Mm. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey, Gene. Uh, your, the comments by uh, one of your guests regarding, uh, you know, who backs up the water shutoffs, who backs up the evictions, et cetera, uh, opens up on really what the whole point of this is. Which is not really the police. Uh, it goes well beyond them. It's, it's the whole system, the whole structures of that, that enforce the kind of inequality that uh, we see exist. Uh, a system like that cannot exist without force and violence to maintain it. And what we need now, uh, more than ever, is uh, some consistent, uh, intelligent, uh, peaceful, nonviolent, civil disobedience focused on the institutions that keep enforcing and implementing the inequality among Americans and and, an understanding by uh, the political leaders uh, of all stripes that we've got to do this and we've got to do this quickly. Otherwise, all we're doing is uh, recreating uh, the same kind of phenomenon that happened in the 20s and 30s mm. In, mm. in Europe. Uh, Rittenhouse is the new horse to whistle. Yeah. Uh, Gene, really appreciate the call uh, and the insights. 
uh, Carl Taylor, react to what Gene's saying there. He's talking about how you interrupt this systemic nature of, of all of these things, which is the thing that we've been struggling with in this country since its founding. And I guess uh, this week I maybe probably feel less optimistic than I have at any other time that we're going to be able to interrupt those systems. Uh, I think his point was excellent. And uh, in relation to you feeling depressed, uh, Stephen, I, unfortunately, I think many, including myself, feel the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be, uh, as I said, embedded in the culture and that we plunge ahead and we give lip service. I'm a guy who's worked on two, on the two different administrations on the crime bills. And now I see these crime bills are very ugly and very suppressive. And so we've never been honest. That's what I'm saying. There's no honesty here from our leadership to step up and say, you know, our penal institutions are not good, uh, not having the education, the, the, the collapse of education and economics. And you wonder why people behave the way they do. And I would probably vary a little bit with the police issues that the police are the ones who have to carry out the chore. But many of them have, and that includes even some minorities in the police, they have this us versus them, therefore we never win. It's gotten worse because it's not a matter of being obedient, it's going to break you down. And I, the last thing I will point out is that I like what Gene said about civil disobedience being peaceful. Mm hmm but I would remind everyone, and Stephen, you know this quite well, that Martin Luther King adopted uh, the findings of, of Gandhi, and that many of those people, we just lost John Lewis, mm -hmm. they worked very hard to train to sit at lunch counters and to be nonviolent. And what I'm saying is that a lot of young people out here, they have good intentions, they know what they're talking about, and they're correct, but their execution has not been given the proper training to combat the ugliness of this vile, nasty uh, pushback that we see, that we've always seen. Mm. We've seen this from uh, a white supremacy, and it screams and yells at young people. And these young people, this is, a, this is not your father's Oldsmobile. This is a new kid. So we need to think about that also. But of course he wanted to be a peaceful solution. So I'm not surprised at all. I'm very uncomfortable. It bothers me to hear that you are uncomfortable and many others are uncomfortable. I, my hat is off to Chris uh, Weber, a Detroit native who sure. was on, been in the media and speaking the truth. Yes. And young people, same thing with Jamil Hill and others. They're telling the truth. The matter is, are you going to accept the truth or are you just going to keep continuing to act like nothing is going on? Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation uh, about what's happening in Kenosha, what's happening in America. Uh, we'll talk a little about sports and the reaction of the sports world to all of this, which has also been uh, unprecedented this week. It does seem like people are starting to get it in ways that they didn't before. We'll talk about what the possibilities are coming out of that. We also want to continue to hear from you, John on the east side, Glenn in the cast quarter, Sean in Windsor. We'll get to you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number if you want to join them in line on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Here's an update from WDET General Manager Mary Zatina. 
We are making headway in our campaign to raise the money needed to meet WDET's budget. But as a community, we still have $1.4 million to raise before our fiscal year ends on September 30th. If you stepped up and made a donation, thank you. More than 500 listeners have joined WDET for the first time, and almost 700 have renewed their membership after years of not giving. Supporting the news, music, and conversations you hear on WDET every day is, as Andalisi might say, essential to keeping news, arts, and music in Detroit alive. And for our ability to make sure it's there whenever you want to listen, on the radio, on your mobile app, on demand, and online. If you can give and haven't yet become a member of WDET, please do it now at WDET.org. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, we're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. We've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's, it's amazing to me why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. That's a voice of L.A. Clippers coach Doc Rivers this week talking about the shooting of Jacob Blake. Uh, I think you can hear in his voice the same tenor of emotion and frustration and sadness that a lot of people are feeling, not just African-Americans, but I think a lot of white people are feeling uh, the same way, uh, given what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin this week as well as the reaction to it around the country. This is Detroit Today. I am Stephen Henderson, and my guests this hour are Peter Blackmer, an assistant professor of Africology and African-American studies at Eastern Michigan University, as well as Carl Taylor, a professor of sociology at Michigan State University. We're talking about this moment and the movement that is emerging from it, what possibility it has uh, to make change so that we are not constantly reacting to the same thing, it seems, over and over again, which reminds us, of course, of the history and the power of systemic racism and inequality in this country. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you're making of what happened in Kenosha and the response to it this week. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. And uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Glenn in the class corridor. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Stephen. This is, uh, it's just so upsetting. It's just, it's just, it's hard to listen to this over and over and over again. It seems like we're in the same place. Mm-hmm. This 17 year old white kid from Illinois, he felt empowered. He was a po- empowered felt empowered by the president of the United States of America. That's my country, too. He felt empowered by the police in Kenosha that were talking to him and supporting him, carrying his AK-47. I look at pictures. I can't believe this poor. He can't make decisions for himself. 17 years old. Killer. Killed two men. And wounded another. It just, it just doesn't stop. Yeah. We have to make changes. And right here in Detroit, 
I'm very concerned about what's going on. The way the police, the police just are not getting it. The police, even here in Detroit, are taking these peaceful protests and they're turning them un, uh, in peaceful, unpeaceful mm. by using tear gas and other extreme measures against these peaceful protesters. Yes. And Trump sees this and he says, look, Detroit, they're out of control. Mm. Why did Chief Craig and Mayor Duggan, why do they feed into Trump's story yeah. Glenn, by taking a peaceful march and turning it unpeaceful? Yeah. Glenn, I really, really appreciate your call and and your thoughts. Uh, Peter Blackmore, I want to go back just a little to Doc Rivers, uh, the coach of the L.A. Clippers, talking about this. Uh, of course, we've seen this tremendous response from the sports world just to what happened this week. I mean, we've seen some response over the summer to George Floyd, but this week uh, you see uh, professional athletes saying they're not going to play. Uh, as long as the, this is not being uh, addressed. Um, I, I want to talk about the power of powerful voices being lent to, to social movements and whether that power has uh, the ability to, to actually make the change more likely that people want to see, or is this um, more of the kind of posturing, I guess, that, that, uh, that we've seen in the past that, that's well-intentioned, but doesn't result in, in actual reform. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, when I saw the, the Bucks make that, deliver that statement uh, after refusing to play, I was very encouraged by that. Um, and I, I, I don't want to give way to the kind of cynicism that um, suggests that any action is posturing or self-promotional. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to find out, I, I just don't know this yet about, what kind of communications um, players on the Bucks and other teams that are taking action are having with local organizers in their communities um, to be leveraging their positionality and be leveraging the access to power that they have uh, to amplify and give voice to uh, the demands that organizers uh, in Milwaukee and Kenosha um, in other cities around the country have been making for years but uh, have been actively actively uh, denied or suppressed all along the way. So that's, I think, the, the main thing that I'm thinking about right now is um, uh, to what extent are people who are using their positions right now uh, taking direction from grassroots organizers in their cities. Mm -hmm. uh, Carl Taylor, of course, we've seen black athletes uh, take stands, political stands in the past and and inspire social change. One of the things that strikes me about what we're seeing right now is that it is black and white athletes. Uh, Major League Baseball, a sport mm -hmm. where there's not a lot of African-Americans playing uh, in the major leagues. Uh, last night we saw the Mets and Marlins make a really dramatic statement about not playing uh, and then leaving the field and leaving a Black Lives Matter shirt at home home plate. Uh, what's the what is the upside of the potential here, I guess? I think the upside is great. The potential is showing that it's about inclusion and it's about uh, humanity. It's not simply 
just a black thing where we're asking for the black community to be included and respected the same as everyone else. And so it's not just black folk that understand that. There are many people who are white. I have a lot of friends and I have a lot of students, they're former students, but they're stepping up. So that's great. And I think that should be a signal to others that even if you are very conservative and feel this or that or the other, that humanity is what we're talking about. You can be a little kinder. You can understand that if the kids don't have good schools, they have people that have good opportunities, that is what turns people into um, ugliness. And so I think it's excellent. I do. I, like I said, I can't. Young people are the answer. And by the way, Stephen, I have to say, and with my colleague from Eastern there, uh, as of uh, a few days, I will be officially retired. So I'll oh. be emeritus. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That is a milestone. That's <laughs> a milestone for sure. But I'm still continuing to work, you know, with my brother and others. Sure. I'm going to be working with a new think tank, but uh, I will be retired at the end of this week. My goodness. Wow. Well, congratulations, Carl. Of course, you've had a really wonderful and distinguished career there at uh, at MSU. Uh, I want to get to uh, one more call here before we have to end. Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, wow, what a powerful show. So I'm a 73-year-old. I'm um, white. I've been an activist, and then I've fallen out, and then I've been an activist again. <laughs> uh, I'd like to write a letter to this whole conversation by just saying to people, please don't give up. I have... Uh, I found a, a piece of artwork of John Lewis crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, waving goodbye. I have that on my screensaver now. Wow. And I, I, I just sit there and I look at it and I said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, keep going, keep going. Because I didn't keep going my whole, my whole life on the issue. I, I appreciate the issue and then I get busy with something else. Mm. But it just seems to me that, uh, that our nation came out of the Enlightenment to define humanness, uh, understanding what the verb to be is, that we have a right just to exist. Mm. Mm. And now it gets all confused with uh, privilege, and sure. and I, I, I can't go into it, but I, I, I'm, not a, I'm a capitalist, but I think capitalism has gotten entwined in this to be the success story, and, not, and that diverts us from thinking about what the real thing is, that we're human beings, and that we have a right to exist, we have a right to to have an ability to act, we have a right to act in our own truth, yeah. and uh, we just can't can't keep that question framed. So my letter to my posterity would be, please keep it going. Yeah, Dennis and Dearborn, great words to end the program. I want to thank Peter Blackmer and Carl Taylor for being with us. Uh, thank you guys uh, very much for, for being part of the conversation here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Stephen. That is going to do it for us this week. I will be back on Monday, and I hope you will too. We're going to talk with political chief co- political correspondent Tim Alberta about the GOP and whether that party has given up altogether on ideas. And we will recap this week's Republican National Convention as well. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.